You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, stay right there in, in Matthew chapter 7. Um, I kind of want to look at the last verse that I read. Uh, the last verse, when we concluded the teaching, when Jesus was done with the teaching, the crowd, it says they marveled and they said, he teaches different than everyone else that we've heard. And they didn't say he teaches different because he's gregarious or because he's funny or because he's deep and it leads me to thinking and deep introspection or because it's philosophically sound. He said he teaches it because he teaches in such a way that he is authority to say it and we think he really means it and we see this as a character all the way through the sermon on the mount and so we see at the beginning it starts off blessed are the poor in spirit and it says blessed are those when you're persecuted for yours is great reward and it just gets worse and worse and worse and then he starts talking to the crowds and he says from the Old Testament, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And right there, some of the people in the crowd kind of got stiff and then we'll make eye contact with him. And some people kind of got loose. That's not me. And then he said for the people who got loose, it says it is you because if you've committed lust, you've committed adultery. And then everyone got real still. And then he says, you've heard it say, don't commit murder. And everyone in the crowd got really nervous. Because they want to know who's committed murder, right? And so they start to look around. And he says, but I tell you that before God, if you've hated in your heart, you are guilty of murder. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. And we get to the end of it. And he starts to build these pictures. He starts to go in mode of, I want you to have a sense of the weight that is here. I want you to know that I really mean it. I have the authority to say it and I really mean it. You can trust that I have the authority to say it because I'm not quoting from scribes. I'm not quoting from people who've read this. I'm quoting in a way because I wrote it. That's why I can say, this is what Jesus is saying. That's why I can say, not only don't commit murder, I'm telling you if you've hated, you're guilty of murder. He took what was written and he added to it. And they said, no one teaches like this. He has authority and it's like he means it. And we see this idea build. I mean, if you went ahead and you jumped to Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how many times do I have to forgive my dirtbag brother? Seven times? And he goes, no, 70 times seven. And they didn't have calculators, so it probably took him hours or days to figure out. It's a lot of times. He says, no, that's not enough. You need more. And it gets even worse. I mean, if you remember in Matthew 21, so it's growing and it's growing. And what he's showing is the Old Testament, the law is it's this bully that pushes you around. And it's saying, Jesus is saying, I am bigger than the Old Testament. I'm bigger than the law. I have the right to, to come and to forfeit from it. People for myself. And so we come in the temple and it's right before uh, the crucifixion, before the crowds turn on him. He comes into the temple and he starts to look around and he doesn't like what he sees. And so he goes over to the corner and he makes a whip and he starts to beat the people and he starts to push them out. Now, that would be a bad day at church if you come in, someone in the crowd just kind of, you know, we don't have stuff, picks up a chair. He starts beating you and pushing you out and starts kicking over the tables and starts to do all this and no one stops him. I heard a preacher once, and he was painting this picture and was building it, and he, said, he says, and so all the years of working hard in the carpentry shop, he takes the whip and he raises his hand, exposing his muscle, and that's why they ran. I have no idea if Jesus was ripped or not. I mean, I, if, if I was God of the universe and I was coming in a body, I would be careful with the body that I picked. But I have no idea what his physical stature was. I don't think they looked at him and the physical stature scared him. I think they looked at him and they said, this is a man who means it. There will be no buying him off. There will be no stopping because he means it and he's not going to stop. And we, we see that. We see that. When we see someone who really means it, it scares us. I was a, a sophomore, um, and I was in a fraternity, and it was Dad's Day at the University of Oklahoma, and so you invite your dad to come and uh, hang out. We do dinner. We go to the football game. 
And it was after the football game, and we were all sitting around. And uh, one of the guy's dad, his name was Buck, uh, his dad was a barber. So it meant that he cut hair, but he really talked for a living. And so... Um, he had all these stories, and man, he starts rolling off these stories, and he grew up, I think it was like inner city St. Louis, and so he starts talking about the street, and I mean, he grew up there, so we're like, this guy has street cred, right? And so we're sitting there, we're listening, and he throws a situation, like, hey, boys, what do you do if you find yourself trapped in an alley surrounded by a rival gang? And I was with him until he got to the rival gang because like, hey, I don't, know, I don't know what to do. And so we're there and he's like, let me tell you what you do. And I was expecting like, you know, attack the person you don't see, you know, something like that. Or I was expecting like, you know, ghetto slam someone, which means you just pick up the biggest thing you can find and you slam them with it, you know. I was expecting something like that. He says, no, no, no. This is what you do. You bite off your finger. I was like, I don't, I don't think this is useful. And he says, no, no, think about it. I mean, you're surrounded. They're going to beat you and probably kill you. You'll live if you bite your finger up. But who's going to mess with someone who just bit off their finger? And I was like, he's got a point. And so then I start looking at his hands. I'm like, is this from experience? And so, but what he was saying is when you see someone who means it, I mean, if someone just bit their finger off in front of you, you're like, what is he going to do to me? I mean, it's scary. I mean, they are going the distance. They're going to go the limit. And so when Jesus stood up and when he taught, he was someone, not someone who bit off his finger, which he could. He'd be like, now watch this. It'd be that trick you do in your uncle. Uh, He was someone who said it in such a way that you said he means it. Now, I, I picked this text. I don't do real well. I'll just open text, fill it and preach just anywhere. I do better when it's assigned to me because I'll talk myself out of three or four different texts as I'm going. And so we've been in this money series and, and Rodney didn't say this, but it's clear he didn't trust me to do anything in the money series because he was like, no, 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 just do something else. I was like, no, I can just, no, no, do something else. I was like, okay. And so, and it's been rough. It's been rough. And so when I realized I wasn't trusted to do anything in the money series, I thought I'll become the favorite minister. I'll do Ecclesiastes. I'll be like, eat and drink and be merry people. And like, we like Casey. And so I thought about doing that. But then I thought, no, we'll do a tough text. And I started thinking, this is a text that, that causes me great difficulty and great, great fear. So Jesus is building and he's showing that the law cannot bring life. It can only bring death. And we are all guilty and we're not good enough. And then he gets and he says, but some of you think you're in and you're not. And some of you are actually in. You're really not. And some of you who are teach are not what you say you are. And he comes in and he gets offensive. And then he gets more offensive. And then he gets incredibly offensive. And so I thought that's what we would do. So here we are. And so we pick up. And the first thing, if, if you get nothing else, I want you to hear this. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount to tell us this, that although there is no such thing as belief without action, action can be present without saving belief. He says, although there is no such thing as true belief that doesn't have action, he says, there can be action without saving belief. And so he says, be careful. And so he starts off this and he insults the outside and then he insults the top and then he insults the inside. And so on the outside, he starts and he insults with a picture of two roads. And so if you're taking notes, he says there are two roads, one to heaven and one to hell. And so in verse 13, he describes it this enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so just to kind of look at the elements of this picture. First off, I want you to see that there are set roads. When he says, he says, both ways are set roads. He says there's not many roads. There are two set roads. Now that picture, like the ESV translates it as the way. But it's the word Odon, which in the Greek language was used to describe the Romans' empire. There are many, many roads. There are established, firm path to get to destination. He says, 
their roads. And so that means that no one hacks their own path. That means there's not like a shortcut that you might find or there's not deep knowledge that you're going to discover. No one finds their own way. He says there are two roads and they're set. And so he goes on. Now look at it. He says both roads have gates. In verse 13 and 14 he says there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. And he starts to describe them. But it's important that he says there are not many paths to one destination. You are either on a path going somewhere you don't want to go or you're on a path going to life. Now this has always been offensive because he's looking at the crowd. He's saying, some of you are on a road to hell and some of you, by accepting me, are on a road to life. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There's not a lot of ways to get inside. Now for our culture, it's very offensive. Matter of fact, there are people in Christian churches, there could be people here who are offended right now because you've adopted to this philosophy that many roads get to the same place, that at the end of that road, whatever your road on is an all-loving God who's not going to judge, but's going to forgive. And so you might take this road of Hinduism or Islam, or you might take the road of Judaism or the road of Christianity, but they're all going to the same place. And Jesus would look at you and say, you are wrong. There are two roads. One is wide and many are on it. It leads to destruction. And one is narrow and few find it. And it leads to life. They are preset paths and you've got to be on one of them. There might be many gates into the wide road that lead to destruction. But there's only one gate, Jesus, that leads to life. And so when I was looking at this, I kind of wanted to put that in modern language. And so I just Google and I Googled uh, hate Christianity, which I mean, if you're ever bored, you might want to look at that. Um, some of it's legit, you know, some of it's uh, not. But I came up with these philosophical arguments about this mini roads idea. And so one of them was this. It says all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. And if that's you right here and you're saying, I I think they're all basically teaching the same thing. All I could say to you is you clearly have not read them. You clearly have not read any of the other religions. Do they come to similar ideas of morality and good ways? Yes, they come to similar idea of morality. But when they come to the important question of how do I get to God? All other religions say this, I am here and I am a prophet and I want to show you how to find God, how to make God happy. And Jesus says, I am here and I am God. I am here to find you. They're very, very different. And so he said, there's many gates that are on that road, but there's one gate, Jesus Christ, on this road. And so it might come out that they're all equally valid. And we would just say to that, to assert that doctrinal differences between religions are insignificant. So to look at this religion and this religion and this religion and say, you know what, their doctrinal differences, those absolute statements that say only I'm right, only I'm right, they're insignificant and we can't trust absolute statements. You just made an absolute statement. You just said, don't, they're the same. That's an absolute statement. But you might say it like this. Each religion sees parts of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. I mean, have you heard that? The classical philosophical idea is that you've got a bunch of blind guys and they're surrounding an elephant, which if you're blind and you surround an elephant, it's a horrible idea. And so you got one guy and he's at the side of the elephant you don't want to be on and he's grabbing the tail and kind of twirling it around. And he says, you know what? I think this elephant, this God is kind of like a little snake and he has the tail and the other guy is hugging the, you know, the, 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 the leg and he's like, no, no, no. It's like a big tree. You know, it's big and broad and strong. The other guy's hitting the side of the elephant. It's like a wall. I can't get around it. And the other one's playing with the, the trunk. He says, no, it's like a python. It's choking me out right now. You know, and it says all this, it says they all see a part of it, but no one sees the whole thing. And so they're all true. But the problem is, if you believe it, you just claim that you see the whole thing. That you have some outside perspective that says, oh, yeah, over there, they just see that part. And over there, they see that part. But I know that it all comes together. You're making the same claim that you say is ridiculous to make. 
And so you might also say this, religious beliefs are too culturally and historically conditioned to be true for everyone. And what that means is that if you grew up in India, you're going to believe what they believe. If you grew up in Africa, you're going to believe what they believe. If you grew up in America, you're going to believe what they believe. And so it's got to be true for you. But you just, you just claimed. I mean, you just claimed that, it, that you are outside of your culture. But the only people who really say this are, are modern, western, pluralistic, individualistic, 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 individuals. They're the only people that say that. And so could it be possible that you're just speaking out of the culture and the air that you breathe? And then the final, I found it says, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it. And I just wanted to say, why are you trying to convert me to not convert others? And so our culture comes and when we make a statement that says some are outside and some are inside they look at that and it is offensive and when jesus said it it was also offensive but jesus plainly he plainly says not all roads lead to heaven i am i grew up in oklahoma uh north oklahoma it's about right here if you make a hand and um I grew up in church. I, I grew up uh, with parents who loved the Lord. Um, I didn't realize that uh, there were a bunch of people. I, I realized there were a bunch of people who didn't live it. I didn't realize there were a bunch of people who thought that Christianity was ridiculous. I didn't fully realize it until my freshman year. I was in my speech class. And I walk in and we have to give speeches. And so we pick a topic. They have to be persuasive speeches. And so... In my life, my, my testimony, this was a time that I was really growing. I'd really surrendered to the Lord to a level that I hadn't yet to that point. And a lot of things in my life had changed. And so I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. But it was a section, it was adapted from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And it was called More Than a Carpenter. And it makes the claim that Jesus does not claim to be a prophet or a good guy. He claims to be God. He clearly claims to be God. And so you either have to take him as a lunatic, as crazy. He really thought he was God, but he wasn't. As a liar who knew he wasn't God and thought it would be a fun trick to get people to place their eternal hope in him, only at the end to be like, ah, I was just kidding. Or he's really Lord. And so I'd read this book, and so I thought, man, I'm going to do that for my speech class. I get in class, I sit down, there's uh, three speeches before mine, and uh, I start to get a little nervous, because the first speech is why we should legalize marijuana. (laughs) And uh, I was like, I was not expecting that in my Sunday school class. Um, And then I I got a little more nervous, because it was uh, why there should not be a drinking age. And so you picture the, the, the kind of crowd we're speaking to here, and everyone really seemed to like, there are a lot of head shakings, like, yeah, I like what's going on here. And then I felt a little bit better, because the guy right before me, he did why we should be afraid of killer bees. And so there was epidemic, I was like, don't really see the threat, but, um, and so I get up, and I am nervous at this point. And I have to give a conclusive statement that says, and I say this, although many people argue about the identity of Jesus Christ, if we take his claims upon what he says, we have three choices. He either is crazy, he is a liar, or he is Lord. In that class, I had to watch the videotape of it, which is awkward. In my preaching class, I had to listen to me preaching, which is awkward. And I sit there, but I remember this. When I said, I'm here to clearly identify the identity of Jesus Christ. When I said Jesus Christ, everything got really still. Because when we say there's only one way to heaven, like Jesus said, there's two roads and there's a narrow road that leads to him. And there's a broad path that leads away, leads to destruction, leads to life. It is offensive. And Jesus offended those outside He says, there are two gates. It goes on, look at verse 13 and 14. It says, those who enter by it, that's the wide gate, are many. And those who find it, the narrow gate, are few. That's in verses 13 and 14 at the end. And what it says is both these roads have crowds. 
And he says there is a road that is leading to destruction. It is leading to life without Christ. It is leading to life without hope. It is leading to an eternal destination that the Bible calls hell. And he says the crowd is big. He said, but there's there's a path that's leading to life and the, the crowd is small. And there should be something really convicting in that because that means the majority of the places that we go, there should be a level of misunderstanding that people look at us that they should have. There should be a level of the way we deal with our money, and we are just beating the snot out of you on that lately. The way you deal with your money, that there should be a level of misunderstanding of why you do that. There should be a level of owning up and repenting before people, of saying, I blew it rather than hiding it, that people should not understand. There should be the sources of entertainment that should be different, that people should not understand. There should be a level of misunderstanding. And I look at my life, and I don't see... The, the broad road and this huge misunderstanding about my life. Like, when I think of being persecuted for my faith, I think of being a seventh grader. And for whatever reason, as seventh graders in the early 90s, we all wore extra large t-shirts. And then we kind of cinched them. We kind of tucked them on one side and they draped on the ground on the other side. And I was wrestling 89 pounds in an extra large t-shirt. And I had a Christian shirt on. It said, God's gym. And then had Jesus, and he was ripped out. And it was bench press the sins of the world, or bench press this. And I was walking around with it. And I had to go from the lunchroom to the gym, and we had to walk all the way around, even though they were right next to each other. I don't know why, but I was walking by myself, and there were a bunch of ninth graders, and they were, the, they were cowboys, which they were tough. And, and they go, I'll give you something to bench press. And I'm like, I'm being persecuted. But this says, this says there should be a level of misunderstanding that the majority of the world looks at you and your only explanation should be a gospel explanation. And so it becomes offensive. And then it says in 13 and 14, it says this, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. It leads to destruction, leads to destruction. But then the narrow says for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. It says both roads have destinations. And so Jesus, he starts off and he says the narrow road leads to life. And if you find it, the broad road leads to destruction and many are on it. And he's saying there are not many ways to get to heaven. There is only one way to get to God. And he says, I am that way. And it's logical. I mean, we say narrow, we say dogmatic, but it's logical. If you backed out of your driveway and you're trying to follow your GPS and it just said, ah, you decide, what do you think? You would find a new GPS. And so Jesus looks at many roads and some of that's going to be present here this morning. And he says, not true. It's not true. And so he offends those who are outside But now he offends the leaders and he's going to say this. He's going to give the picture of two leaders and he's going to say one's a deceiver and one is a believer. And so look at this in verse 15. It says, beware of false prophets. You could also say false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep, but they're really wolves. And so he is commenting on something that has always been a problem. He says, there are teachers who stand up and they say, I am teaching on the behalf of God and you need to listen to me. But he says, they are not confused. They are deceiving. There's another category that we're going to look at that's just confused. But he says, there are teachers who are out to deceive, out to manipulate, out to lead in the wrong direction. They're like wolves. And they're like around a bunch of sheep. And so this was true in the Old Testament. I mean, think the Old Testament. You have Jeremiah. If you wanted to focus on just Jeremiah 6, 7, and 8, what you would see is the Babylonians had come in and they had conquered the nation of Judah and they had taken all the great leaders from that nation. That's where you get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they took them back to Babylonia. But some were left and Jeremiah was left and they were under foreign captivity. 
And so all of a sudden, these teachers start to proclaim, God is going to come and rescue us. Don't be scared. Good news is coming. And he says, they are lying. They are telling you what you want to hear. But God sent the Babylonians to conquer us. And he says this in Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14. And then he repeats it in Jeremiah 8. He says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And then he says, from prophet to priest. Sometimes people teach for gain. In the Old Testament, they taught for gain. They wanted a crowd. They wanted a crowd to like what they said. They wanted a crowd to give to them because we like to hear what we already believe. And he says, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Verse 14, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly. And so what he says is my people, they have this open, gaping wound that is full of infection and they have put a bandaid upon it and said, you're going to be okay. And he says this, why they heal the wound, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he says, you've got to watch out. There are leaders who are going to say what you want to hear and they are false leaders. They are false leaders prophets and he gives us description of how we can distinguish but it wasn't just old testament it was during jesus's day in matthew 23 when he's talking to scribes and the pharisees he says woe to you woe to you woe to you and he says you are whitewashed tombs you say things that sound like they have life but they lead to death because inside you are full of death So it was a problem in the Old Testament. It was a problem in Jesus' day. And it's a problem now. There's so much teaching in the New Testament that says watch out for false teachers. It's really interesting to me that when you look at like Corinthians, you see when when Paul, he confronts people. And you see this in his other letters too. He confronts people for adding to the gospel. The Judaizers were going around and saying, hey, yeah, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised to be saved. I mean, do you remember what he says to them? He says, if you're getting circumcised to be saved, it'd be better that you go ahead and just cut everything off because we don't want you to reproduce anymore. He gets really, really vicious with them when you add or take away from the gospel. But, but when he's in Philippians... And he's in jail and he says some preach the gospel out of bad motive. He goes to the motive, but it's still the gospel. He says, just let him preach it. He gets so defensive when the message starts to change. And we see that in New Testament, it's dangerous. And it's tempting to tell people what they want to hear so they like you. In fact, this was so hard. If you read Jeremiah... He's described as uh, the weeping prophet. He had such a heart for his people. And he got so sad to bring them bad news upon bad news upon bad news that at one point he comes to God and God gives him a message and it's more bad news. And he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm done. My people hate me. I I keep telling the truth, but it's just bad news upon bad news. I'm not going to do it. And God just says this. He's like, okay, don't. And then the response back, he says, I didn't want to give the message, but I had to because it was like fire in my bones that had to get out. And so every true teacher has a deep, deep love for their people, but their deep, deep love for their people is superseded by a deep, deep love for Jesus. And so he says it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Look at the description. He says they're wolves described as sheep. And they're among a bunch of sheep. I mean, I am not a farmer or a rancher. I've only been around sheep like twice in my life. Once it was actually in church. We brought some sheep in. They walked around and we had to put huge depends upon them because they were going to poop all over the sanctuary. It was going to upset everyone. And they walked him around. And one that we called Gigantor, I don't think that's his real name, he decides to lay down and they can't get him up. I mean, he's just, he's going to lay there. And they did everything. And it's not like a dog that you can call to him. You can't show him a treat. You have to physically get him up. And we couldn't pick him up because we named him Gigantor. 
and he's got diapers on. And so we're trying to get him up. And the shepherd, I don't think you call him shepherd anymore, rancher, whoever owned him came up, grabbed the sheep by the ear and by the nose, like UFC style, and raises the sheep up. And this is the thing. The sheep had nothing to defend itself. The sheep doesn't have teeth worth anything. His mouth is small. He's going to get made fun of because he's just fluffy and white. He doesn't look intimidating. He doesn't have claws. And so if you take a sheep and you put him in an octagon with a wolf, there's only one way that turns out. The wolf's real happy. There's only one way. And so it's important that we can distinguish this. And so it starts to unfold. And so it gives us this picture of the tree. So look at verse 16. It says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears, that means does, good fruit. And every diseased tree does bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, in the Old Testament, there were a couple different ways to distinguish a false prophet. One was the prediction test. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, if they predict something and it doesn't come true, it says they're a false prophet. Elsewhere, it says you should kill them. And so they stoned them to death. The prediction test. The other is a theological test. The theological test really kind of scares because it says they might predict something. It might come true. They might even do miracles because Satan can empower people to do such things. And so they do great, great works. But if they lead people to worship anything else other than God alone, they're a false prophet. And that's where we got to really start to watch what people do when they preach. You see, sometimes false teachers, it's not in what they say It's what they refuse to say. But here, Jesus says, I want you to use an action or ethical test. In Jeremiah 29, it says, how they live must look like someone seeking to follow after God. And so by nature of knowing the gospel, how they live, it must reflect a humility that is willing to repent when it is in trouble, a humility that's willing to do, not someone perfect, but someone who is striving to follow after Christ. And so up to this point, it's pointing to action. It's pointing to action. It's pointing to action. And all of a sudden, that offends people up on the top. But now Jesus comes and he says, action is not enough. And he's going to offend the Christian community. He's going to offend the attendees. And he gives another picture. He says, there's two attendees. And so we had two roads. We had two leaders. And now he says there's two churchgoers. And he's going to say this, in those two churchgoers, there are saved and there are lost. And he's going to describe them to look exactly the same. Look at this. And so he says, you can't just trust them by what they do. Here Jesus is going to say, what you do is not a guarantee that you're a Christian. Look at verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now we're going to come back and really pull on that. Because we see two actions, or one that's doing, I do this, and then he says, the one who does the will of God. And so he goes on, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. When I I decided to do this text, I decided because I was like, this is a text I'd like to study more. It's a text I really don't like. And so I started studying just a little bit on Tuesday. And at the end of studying it some, I instantly decided I should not do this text. And then Wednesday came, I studied it more. And then Thursday came, I started looking at old sermons, like it's time to punt, do something different. And I started, and then I got this real peace. And so there's a few things I want, and this isn't going to give you peace. Peace is going to come later. But there's some things that stand out that I want to show you. You see, both hear these words. Only one man does them entertaining true belief. But the message is clear that what you do does not necessarily indicate true belief. Because both these people are doing. And so the first thing we see, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says Lord. The Greek word there is kurios. 
And in that Greek word for the Jewish, uh, the Greek uh, Jew, they would think the Septuagint, where God is mostly called Lord. He's mostly called Kyrios. And so that's why they had trouble with the Roman invaders, because they wanted you to call their leaders Lord. And they say, we can't call anyone else Lord because we have good doctrine and we can only call God Lord. And so these people have good doctrine. They call him Lord. And so good doctrine, be able to pass the test, going to Bible school, going to seminary, making more than a D in Hebrew, which I made a D in Hebrew, big deal, right? Making more than a D in Hebrew is not a guarantee that you are saved. You can answer all the questions right. And then it goes on, look at verse 2. 21 goes on, they don't just say Lord, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And this evades emotional engagement. They are emotionally engaged. They're not just a bunch of spiritual fatheads who answer all the questions right. They come to worship and they have a moving worship. They have feelings that come along with it. And they are engaged. And when they worship, they put their hands up like this. I mean, not like us who put our hands up kind of like this. I mean, they put their hands up like this and they worship. And so you might say, that's preacher hyperbole. The, the repeat, you're stretching it. What, what, about, what about Mary and Martha in Luke 10? When Jesus is there talking and Mary is at his feet and she's hanging on every word and Martha's in the kitchen and she is busy and she is working and she comes and it doesn't translate specifically like this, but she comes and says, Jesus, tell my lazy dirtbag sister to get up and help me serve you. What does Jesus say? Does he say, Martha, you are a wicked Pharisee? No, no. He goes, Martha, Martha. You see, in the Semitic language, when they want to show deep emotion, they always repeat. She goes, Martha, Martha, what Mary has chosen is better and it won't be taken from her. He's saying, you can join me here. Deep emotion, not the sharp rebuke. Martha, Martha. Or we go back further and we can see David and Absalom. When Absalom, his son, has turned against him and led most of the nation away from him. And he flees Jerusalem and he runs away with his loyal troops and they declare war upon each other. And at the cost of the war, at the end of the war, Absalom, his son, is dead. In 2 Samuel 18 and verse 33, this is how he approaches it. He says, the king was deeply moved and went to the upper chamber over the gate and wept. Listen to what he says when he weeps. And as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He wants to show that he is emotionally moved. And so it's repeating, oh, my son, oh, my son. And so the people at the end day, the day of judgment, when it says the day, that's what it's talking about. They say, Lord, Lord. And they say, we had right doctrine. And then it says this, we were emotionally engaged, emotionally moved. And then it says this, they were active in ministry. Look, look at verse 22. This, this is the most sobering. This should convict most people in here. I mean, unless we, we need to have some testimonies from you. If this doesn't convict most people in here, it says this verse 22 on that day, the day of judgment, they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And you think hosting a host home for disciple now is up on the A list. This is A-grade material here. And Jesus says, depart from me. Now, careful when you read that. Careful when you read that. When I read that, I always want to say, depart from me, because you never knew me. But he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, depart from me, because I didn't know about you. It's not like it's a clerical mistake. And he's like, oh, I don't know this guy. It's not that at all. He uses relational, depart from me. I never knew you. 
And then he knows it's going to land heavy and he goes inside and he's dividing the inside. And so there's people who could be doing the same things. They look the same, but some are saved and some are lost. And he goes and he spreads it out. And so he gives us a story so we can understand. And the story shows two Christian characteristics. And he's answering the question, how do I know if I'm really saved? And so verse 24, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. It goes on. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the same winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, if you're not careful when you see this, and in two places at the top, it says the wise person, he does. And then in verse 26, the unwise does not do. You start to attribute it to the house and not the foundation. But Jesus, he's following the predicament that he saw in verses 21 through 23 with the story to paint the picture. Because here's the deal. The houses look the same. Both houses have good doctrine. Both houses have an emotionally satisfying faith. Both houses... Both houses have within them a social justice that seeks the welfare of others. But one is built on the foundation of what it did. And one is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the foundation of what it did, no matter how big the house is, no matter how strong it's built, no matter how much you believe it, no matter how much you want it, cannot save because the foundation of what you do cannot save you. And so it's interesting when you look back, when they, they say, when it, Jesus says, I don't know you, what do they do? Look, look in verse 21 through 23. On that day, they'll say, Lord, and look, did we not prophesy? Did we not do? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do? Did we not do mighty works? Did we not do? And so the same saying is being done here at the end when the house fails. Look at the house we built. It didn't stand up in judgment, but the person on top. They don't point to the house. Their house should fall. But it doesn't fall because it's built on the strong Son of God. And so when we look at this, how how do I know? First thing, it, it shows a surrendered will. You see, you can do a lot of things and you can be very passionate, but never surrender your will. In verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. See, the will of the Father was that one man would suffer for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that one would take upon the sin of many and give him his righteousness. And so the will of the Father in John 10 is described like this. Jesus says this, he says, you, you, no one can take my life from me. I freely give it. And then he says, this is why I freely give it. This command I received from my Father. And then we see Jesus in the garden. And he is troubled. And he is weeping. And he is crying out to God. There's got to be another way. But then he says, but not my will, your will. And see, the will of God and the reason why the road is narrow is because the road is only wide enough for an individual because only Jesus followed the will of God and he took the cross upon his back and it's wide enough for individuals to fall behind him. That's why your parents cannot save you. That's why your preacher cannot save you. It is not a group effort. It is a Jesus effort. And he goes before us, hacking through this great dividing wall of thorns and sin and death. And he takes out the machete and he makes a firm path. The firm path of faith. It's the rock upon upon which we're built upon. And so it's a surrendered will. Do you know a lot of people come to Jesus because they want to be intellectually stimulated? 
They'll come to Jesus because they want to be emotionally moved. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They'll come to Jesus because they want to be a part of social renewal. They want to do good things because it makes them feel good. They don't come to Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God and they love Jesus. They don't sign their name at the bottom of the contract with a blank piece of paper above them. They're not like Peter. Peter in John 21, when Jesus reinstates him, he comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, oh, I love you, Jesus. And he says, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, oh, Jesus, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. He says a third time, you see the repetition to show emotion. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. Why do you keep asking me? He says, feed my sheep. And then he tells him the rest of the contract. He says, because there's going to come a day when someone takes you by the hand and leads you where you don't want to go. And then there's commentary on it where it says this. Jesus said this to Peter because it was indicating in which in the way that he would die that would bring him glory. A surrendered will says I will be crucified upside down if it brings God glory. It says if I'm never socially satisfied by the work that's done, if I'm on the mission field, it never really works out. If I'm Jeremiah and I love my people and they hate me, I surrender because it's for Jesus. It's a surrendered will. But there's a lot of people who have not surrendered their will. They say, I'll do this, Jesus, if I get this. A faith that stimulates me intellectually. It's fascinating. If I get this, if there's emotion of me being a part of something bigger and better, I feel a part of something, something's bigger than my worthless life, I'll, I'll, I'll surrender. Or if I'm serving in such a way, the houses look the same. And so the first thing we see is surrendered will. But then we see an awareness of grace. Look at verse 24 through 25. You see, if we back up in the first one, when on the day of judgment in verses 21 through 23, we see they point to things they did. In verses 24 and 25, it doesn't talk about the things they did or the things they didn't do. It talked about there's two foundations. One is a foundation of grace and it's rock solid and you can build up on it and it can sustain you. One is a foundation of sand and so you have to make your works, what you build, sustain you. One points to things they did. One points to something that was done for them. And so an indicator. When the people who love you, when they confront you about sin. When, when Rodney, preaching through a sermon on money, confronts you that we're greedy. Do you first point to things that you do well? Yeah, yeah, I, I, might be, I might be failing on that, but look what I did. Look what I've done. Look how much I've given. I serve in the pre-K. Look what I do. Jesus' words weigh very, very heavy because he says, although in the church, Christians and non-Christians can believe the same thing. They can have the same emotional experiences. They can serve in the same ways. One is still pointing to themselves, and one points to Jesus. So with your heads down, your eyes closed, we're going to come to a part of the service where we're going to worship. And see, for the Christian, when they hear this, there is a freeing, liberating air that comes around them because they know all the times they fail. They know they give too little. They know they do too little. They know they're lazy when it comes to doctrine and those things. And they know they're disobedient. But there's this liberating conviction that falls upon them. Because they say, praise Jesus. Praise the Lord that the strong foundation is not my works. That it is the strong Son of God. That He has hacked a way through the jungle of sin and death. And I have a way that goes to the heart of the Father. And now the strong Son of God sits beside the Father and pleads for me. Thank you, Jesus. But there's another, there's another feeling that's not liberating at all. It's terrifying. 
and the sputtering of your heart, you start to point to things you've done. And then you find out, I can't point to things I've done. And you go to point to more things of how authentic you are. But you can't point to the measure of your emotions because they betray you. And so you start to point to things you do again. And then you start to point to things you believe. And you point to a moment, I've got to be okay because I said the prayer once. Jesus doesn't say, depart from me because you never said the sinner's prayer. Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know you. The Sermon on the Mount is a series of teachings and stories that get worse and worse and worse. But at the very darkest hour, because of what we know of the cross of Christ, there is an exuberant celebration because Jesus has paid it all. Are you trusting in that foundation? Father, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, I pray for some of us this wouldn't bring confusion about their state. But for some of us, it would bring clarity and there would be a movement because it identifies what we're trusting in. Lord, I'm so thankful. I mean, I hate it when you give hard, hard words. But I am so thankful that you give words that cut and that tear because the scar tissue of sin that is encompassing my heart is strong. And I need words that are like a surgeon's razor to remove it. And so in a moment while we're worshiping, we flipped our service because we want to have opportunity for people to respond and for people to get prayer, for people to sit and pray with one another or stand and worship in exuberance or go and ask forgiveness from someone. We want room for that. And so we, this is your time. As we sing, when I, when I finish the prayer and I say amen, we're going to have home group leaders. They're going to move to the outside and they're just going to be there to worship and to sing. And if you need prayer or you have questions, they're there for you. The scary thing is the people who were most surprised were the people who were rejected. In verses 21 through 23. Father, would you bring us clarity? It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Because of what he did on the cross. Because of the life he lived. Because he sits by you, Father. And he prays for us. And he doesn't say give him mercy because our debt has been paid. He says you give him justice. I paid it. And Hebrews reflects. It says there's no more need for sacrifice. Because you don't have to earn God's love. It's been earned. The gospel tells us that, Jesus, you see how wicked we are and you know our wickedness more than we do. You see it and you love us deeper than we could ever understand and you've made a way. And for the surrendered heart who would say, not my will, but your will. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. That you separate their sin from the east to the west and you remember their sin no more and you give us the righteousness of Jesus. You clothe us in it. Because our righteous works are rags. Let that be the exuberance of our worship as we sing Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.